Hello, everyone. This is Luminous Star. Welcome to the channel. All of my current subscribers, mwah, thank you, girls, and thank you guys so much for joining me today for this live stream. And of course, I want to thank you for being a part of our star family. And um, I hope everyone have their libations and some snacks and everything. And um, I'm going to try not to go for more than about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Today, I want to talk about the importance of detaching from narcissistic codependent relationships. If I feel like I want to do a live stream, I would just go for it. So I hope you all can forgive me for that. Usually I try to give some notices, but um, sometimes when I really feel like I really want to talk about something and share something with you all, I'll just go ahead and go on live stream. Okay. <laughs> so I'm so happy you all are joining me today. Now, of course, at the end of the live stream, I'm going to be posting the live stream and in the description box below, there will be another location where you can get the link to the uh, slide presentation. So I'm going to be talking about detaching and the importance of detaching from narcissistic codependent relationships. Because a lot of us, you know, we, we already know the roller coaster ride, <laughs> the drama. Okay. Sometimes we have to, we feel like we're looking over our shoulders. You know, I don't mean to sound like I'm speaking for everyone, but I'm speaking from all of the testimonials that I've received in person and even online, you know, such as the email. Some of you have been sending me emails. I have been chatting in private with some of you all. So uh, this is some of the common themes that I'm hearing about. Sometimes, you know, feeling like you have to look over your shoulders because sometimes those uh, narcissists, they will have those flying monkeys. And we know about those flying monkeys, right? <laughs> and they can play some dirty game. Now, narcissistic codependent relationships, of course, when we're dealing with two components, which is codependency and narcissism, this can compound the effects of that relationship. Okay, it's already a dysfunctional relationship. So when we're going through a lot of stuff, such as health issues, okay, from the drama, from all the shenanigans that they pull, right? Now, most of us, we're dealing with more than one person that has a cluster personality type. Now, some people, they think or they misconstrue that this is what I used to do. Whenever I heard narcissists, I'm just thinking it's, it's just one type of person, right? With a particular type of personality. But what I didn't know was that cluster B personality types, okay? Not all of those cluster B personality types are narcissists, okay? So it's very easy for us to misconstrue that. Now, no worries. I'm not getting, you know, I'm not suggesting to take this person off the hook. They still pull shenanigans. They still do things that really <laughs> they ought not do. But the bottom line is, I think it's very important for us to really know who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with. And one of the best ways to do that is to make sure we understand what cluster B personality types are. Okay, so we, get, we have the histrionic. We have the borderline. We have narcissistic, which most of us know about that one. And we also have antisocial. And all of these consist of a cluster B personality type. Now, the reason why I mention that is because not all of those uh, cluster B personality types are narcissists. But see, as we break it down that way, it's obvious. It's obvious that not all of those individuals would, would be narcissists. Because again, you have the four aspects 
of that cluster. Um, we're going to be talking about three things here. The insecure attachment styles, uh, which also can be inappropriate attachment styles. Then we're going to be talking about the contrast as the seed of detachment. And of course, I'm going to be going over tools, references, and resources with you. Okay, now, what is the uh, purpose of learning the value of detachment? Now, I'm going to go ahead and start that out with my own personal experience. One of the things that detaching has done for me was to help me boost my confidence, to help me to see that it's possible to have other types of relationships other than negative or unhealthy relationships with uh, cluster personality types, right? Before I had the contrast, I thought that narcissists were everywhere. Cluster personality types were everywhere, not only on the home front, but at work or on within the job force, right? The workforce. I just saw them everywhere. But this is why the contrast is very, very important. But I'll get to that in a minute. Now, the purpose of detachment for me was also to boost my confidence. It actually increased my self-esteem. Because when you're in a relationship with a cluster personality type, there are many times that your not only your health will be compromised, but you will also suffer from low self-esteem, which is actually moves right into not loving yourself enough. And then you're not going to really be able to see that it's possible to have positive relationships with other people. Now, we live in a world today where there are more and more people. Now, you all can comment in the, in the chat about this, but I think we all can agree that today we're living in a world where more and more people are becoming accustomed to spending more time alone. Whether or not they're in relationships that are romantic, friendships, business partnerships, I don't care what type of ship it is, but there are more and more people who are becoming accustomed to spending more time alone. Okay, so there could be various reasons for that. But I think we all can agree that we're starting to see more and more signs of this. And, you know, some people can blame it on technology or blame it on social media. You know, a lot of people are on social media. And I say use social media as a tool, not a crutch, especially when we're talking about narcissism. Okay, which in my opinion, uh, pathological narcissism is on the rise. That's debatable, but I, to me, it's pretty clear that it's on the rise. But uh, that's my personal uh, story about detachment. It helped me to love myself more, to appreciate myself more, to see more of my positive characteristics. Because when you're around narcissists and cluster personality types, one of the things that happens is that not only will you see that you have a poor self-image, but again, this weighs on the spirit. This, this type of relationship, it just weighs a person down. You're, you're, current, you're just thinking about, okay, well, how can I please him or her? What can I do? You're walking on eggshells. It's like, I can't do anything right. You can't satisfy the person, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. First of all, narcissistic uh, personality and the other cluster personality types that I mentioned, usually you walk on eggshells because they're very sensitive. These individuals, according to the DSM-5, Okay, they are emotionally erratic. Okay, in other words, they're, they're emotionally, they don't regulate very well. 
Okay, but of course, don't take my word for it. Please do your research. According to the DSM-5, the cluster B personality type, out of all the clusters of personalities, so such as the cluster A, cluster, but yeah, cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C, but out of all those three cluster personality types, it is the complex, uh, the most complex one is the cluster B. So the cluster B personality type is the most complex because it is a fixed personality type. Whereas the cluster A personality, okay, and the cluster C personality, they're more flexible to change. They're not as fixed. Actually, they're not fixed at all. It is only the cluster B personality type that is fixed. So what does that mean? More than likely, they're not going to change. Okay, and this is often why they also go stealth or under the radar, whereas it pertains to the mental health care industry. They can go under the radar. They're not easily as detected. Okay, now I'm not saying this is always the case, but this is also one of the reasons why it is very tough to get them to see a counselor. And even if they do, this is often why they also end up uh, manipulating counselors. Now, I'm not saying that counselors are stupid or incompetent. What I'm saying is, according to the way that the cluster B personality type functions, see, they can go stealth. They can go up under the radar. And because they emotionally uh, do not regulate, where what is their strongest suit? It's mental, not emotional. So they can play mind games like no one else. Okay, so I hope that's clear to everybody. But this is one of the things that I think is very important for us to realize. Because when it comes to detaching from the cluster personality type, this is one of the reasons why it's very challenging. Because the person who attaches emotionally to such a, a personality type, such as the cluster B, yeah, they're going to be going over a lot of emo uh, emotional roller coasters, right? It's going to be an emotional roller coaster ride because you're dealing with a person who's mentally strong. Not saying that that, that doesn't mean positive, by the way. You know, you ever heard of an evil genius? You ever heard of someone who's very cunning, but they're evil? like a Svengali narcissist, they play with the mind, okay? They, they play with the mind like no one else. They have a lot of abracadabras in that trick bag, okay? <laughs> They're very good at it. So when a person like you or I, who may not have a lot of issues with emotionally regulating, in other words, we, we feel certain things. We feel empathy. We even feel sympathy for people. The narcissistic personality especially lacks that or lacks those qualities. So when you are a person who feels and you're dealing with a person who doesn't feel, let me strike that. Forget what I just said about the feeling. When you're dealing with a person that emotionally does not regulate, but you do, one of the reasons why mental health can actually occur is because the person is trying to use their mind instead of feeling they put their feelings on the back burner because they're dealing with someone 
who doesn't feel as much or that they don't attach as much. It's not that they don't feel at all. That's why I said scratch what I just said. Scratch that out. I meant to say that the person doesn't feel as deeply. They don't connect as much. So you a person that's able to do that and you're dealing with someone who doesn't do that very well, that can cause conflict and tension in the relationship. And not only that, you tend to, in order to please the narcissist and the cluster personality type, you tend to put aside what you're best at. And that is feeling empathy. You're able to feel, you're able to feel joy, express it even. See, when you start to express, the narcissist starts to exploit. So you're dealing with a person who's up here a lot. Okay? And you may tend to be more in your heart. And I said you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. I'm saying you tend to feel more deeply. And you're dealing with a person who doesn't do that. They're more superficial. So this is where mental imbalance can occur. Now, I'm not saying it does for sure or for certain, but it could. Because when you're trying to make sense out of what doesn't, that's when mental imbalance can occur. They call it crazy making for a reason. And I think that's one of the reasons. Narcissists and cluster personality types, they tend to be masters at the crazy making. So when you're dealing with that person and you, you know, you're trying to connect with them, you love, you care, you feel empathy, but you're dealing with a person who shut down in those areas, then yeah, mental illness can short, can, can actually uh, be a problem. Because when you're talking about your health being compromised, I'm talking about not just your mental health, your physical health, emotionally, okay? You can feel, but then you start to question. When they start to gaslight, neuro-linguistic programming at play, they're playing with your mind, okay? So instead of you staying in your body and you're able to feel, so you're trying to make sense out of what doesn't. And when you start getting out of your heart space and you start going up here, trying to figure out somebody who's already up here a lot, then that can cause a lot of tension. That can cause a lot of confusion in the relationship and mental. Well, I'm going to, I'm just going to say, instead of just saying mental, I'm going to say your overall health can be compromised. You're not supposed to see, that's not supposed to make sense to a person like you and I. See, the narcissist and cluster personality type, they're very comfortable with playing those type of games. Okay, so you have to check out your gamesmanship. How are you playing the game? A lot of us try to figure out how the narcissist or the cluster personality type is playing the game. Okay, it's okay to be mindful of, of, of what they do, but to sit there and try to calculate every move and how they do it, and why they do it, again, mental health can be compromised. Your overall health can be compromised, okay? So the purpose of learning how to detach is imperative for all those reasons, for all those reasons and more. Because this person, once they get into your head, sometimes it's a wrap, okay? So, uh, you know, uh, a few things can happen here. You can restore your self-awareness, increase confidence, raise self-esteem, improve overall health, and see the possibilities of having positive relationships. 
And as I was talking about before, the contrast is imperative. When you have that contrast, you have the apples and you have the oranges. And you can compare the two. You can compare positive, healthy relationships to unhealthy and negative relationships. So you have your cluster B personality types over here and you have everybody else over there. And you can see both groups. So that way, every time you go to the job, you're not just seeing cluster personality types, even though they're there, but you're not just seeing them and your energy is not drained because you're not focusing only on them. When you go to the job, you're trying to not only get paid, but you're trying to come up. I, I certainly hope you are. You're trying to get promoted, right? How can you do that when you're focused on cluster personality types on the job, on the home front or in the home front? Right. So you, you, you think you see them everywhere. Yeah, they are on the planet. But there, there is how realistic is that, that they're everywhere, that everyone is a narcissist or because of personality type, highly unlikely, therefore not realistic. So when we have the contrast, OK, I don't mention this one as much. But there are three things that the contrast Three things, but it, there's a fourth one that I don't usually mention. And that is, okay, now I'm going to go over the three first. The contrast has harmony, peace of mind, and also has balance, right? So when we have those three things, this helps us to look at those two groups that I just mentioned. The apples and the oranges, okay? Positive relationships, not positive or negative relationships, right? Right? But there's one more thing that uh, this can provide us. So when we have the contrast, it helps us to focus on how to thrive forward. Okay, now I don't mention that one too much. But the contrast, when we have the contrast, we can focus. Because otherwise, you're going to be drained of energy. How can you focus and thrive forward when you're trying to please narcissists and codependents? Everywhere, you know, you know, you go because they're not unfamiliar with codependency. Codependency encourages a person to stay in the sunken place, to stay stuck. They can't see beyond where they are. Right. So I just wanted to mention that because this is also why detachment is very important. You have to get away from this stuff. But when you are learning how to detach you have to also be focused on how to thrive forward past narcissistic codependent relationships. Now, let's get into the insecure attachment styles. I mentioned one already. Codependency. That's an insecure attachment style. Pathological narcissism is another insecure attachment style. Trauma bonds. Okay, that's another insecure attachment style. Now, when we're talking about trauma bonds, I'm going to go to that one first. Trauma bonds can be toxic ties. And that can be uh, the soul tiles, the tiles, ties. I know you all have heard of soul ties. But anyway, um, when we're talking about trauma bond, trauma bond can also cause enmeshment. So when you're in a relationship with someone who's playing with your mind, okay, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're coming from the problem. Now, this is just not only romantic relationships. This can be any type of relationship that you can think of. But let's just say, for instance, it's a romantic relationship. So you can be trauma bonded 
to your partner. Okay, so for instance, your partner can have, you may or may not know that they have the backstory, how they became traumatized, if they're traumatized at all, because some cluster personality types are not traumatized. Don't be fooled by that. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But let's just say that you have a partner and the backstory is, or the background or their history is that of trauma, okay? Due to being abused in some sort of way, shape or form. And let's just say that you have a similar background, all right? There may be, um, you may have been a person who grew up uh, within an alcoholic family, okay? A lot of family members uh, abuse alcohol, maybe substance abuse, okay? That's your background, all right? This is just an example. So the so both of you are trauma bonded because you're in that relationship. So you're two people who are uh, a part of a relationship, whereas you haven't tapped into resolving your issues of the past. What caused you to become traumatized? What caused that person to become traumatized? Okay, so there you are. You two people in a relationship. And you, neither one of you have dealt, or maybe one of you has not dealt with resolving childhood issues or childhood trauma. Okay, so that can be a trauma bond. So two people, when they're trauma, when they have a trauma bond, there can be enmeshment. That means you don't know, you don't have a clear sense of your own identity. They don't have a clear sense of theirs. And they may not even care. Right. They may not. And this is another way that they show that they don't care to connect with you. Show me a person that really doesn't know him or herself. And I'll show you a person that is not genuinely connected to others because they don't care to be. They don't care to be connected to. I mean, that's just like me, you know, trying to connect to you. And maybe you're not very interested in the connection because maybe you have some issues that have not been resolved from your childhood or vice versa. Okay, so this is why this would be considered an insecure attachment style. Insecurity, when we think about insecurity, what we think about avoidance. Okay, so this person may avoid. Some people who are avoidant, they call them love avoidant. That's part of the codependency right there. You have one person who loves too much Another person doesn't love enough. That should sound familiar to everybody that's watching this live stream. Okay, so sometimes we are involved with people who just don't love enough because emotionally they don't regulate. Therefore, they lack empathy. See how all of this is coming together? Okay, so um, trauma bonds is an insecure attachment style. Pathological narcissism. Of course, okay, that, that kind of goes without saying because when we're talking about narcissism, we're talking about people who lack empathy anyway. We're talking about people who, I'm going to go ahead and put it like this. Having a relationship with them can be prob problematic because of the way that they choose to relate to other people. Okay, just the way they choose to relate to other people can be inappropriate. 
not just insecure, like an insecure attachment style, but it's just inappropriate. Okay? You say black, they say white. They're pulling shenanigans. They're engaging diabolical tactics, all for the narcissist's supply. See, you become a person that's a pawn. You're a pawn to be maneuvered on the game board at will, at their will. Okay? I don't care if this is a female narcissist or male narcissist. It doesn't matter. Okay, they can be an older narcissist. They can be a younger narcissist. It doesn't matter. They tend to, it's, it's problematic because of the way they choose to relate to people. They're not interested in the deep connection. They're not interested in the intimacy. And this is not, this is not a gender thing. When I say that they're not interested in the intimacy, it's not a gender thing. Because I know, and I'm not bashing the males here, so much love to you men. Mwah. Okay, but a lot of us hear how it's the males who tend to have the hardest time, you know, having um, or, or formulating intimacy or making intimacy happen. Well, I don't agree with that just from my own personal experience. I don't agree with that. Females can have, a, you know, they can have a problem, too, with intimacy. Female narcissists have a problem with intimacy. Okay, believe it or not, they really... They don't show to really want it. And I'm not talking about because she has high self-esteem or she's confident. I'm not talking about all that. It's because of the issues that she has not resolved yet, more than likely from her childhood. Maybe she has a history of having a lot of broken relationships. She may come from a, a, a family that is broken. Maybe she has a single and nothing against single parenthood. I'm just making a point here. There are a lot of see inappropriate or insecure attachment styles happen. The foundation is brokenness. Okay, so it the foundation of it or the seed of it. So when you're talking about pathological narcissism, you just got to look at really. You have to look at this is problematic because of the way that the person who may be considered a cluster personality type or who has been diagnosed to have a cluster personality type, to have an inappropriate way of relating to people. See, they don't even relate to people in a very positive way. Sometimes it may look like it, and that's because, again, you remember that trick bag of abracadabras I was talking about? <laughs> they have a huge trick bag of abracadabras, and usually they are on some hocus-pocus. They're very mysterious. Sometimes you can't figure them out. And when you think you figured them out, they pull something else. And, and you have that shock and awe effect. And it's like, I can't believe they did that. And it's surreal. And then you pinch yourself. It's like, yeah, they did do that. Why would they do that? You see, and this, this is how we start leaving our heart space and we start going up here trying to figure out how they did what they did. Mental imbalance, again, can occur because we're trying to figure out the crazy making. They call it crazy making for a reason. Okay, so um, let's go ahead to the codependency. So codependency, one person loves too much, 
one person doesn't love enough. You have one person who wants to rescue, fix, or save the other person, right? And let's not get it twisted. There are some cluster B personality types who are not unfamiliar with codependency or codependent relationships because they're overly dependent on you, the person who's going to supply them. Okay? So until maybe say if you you get to the point where you're like I don't want to I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want this type of relationship. I'm done, right? And you decide to strategize how you're going to thrive forward. See, when you get to that point and the narcissist sniffs it out, whomever he or she may be, then they may go into a narcissistic rage. They call it narcissistic injury. And sometimes we misconstrue that. We think that means the narcissist was injured. Well, how were they injured? Were they perceived in injustice? See, they're always up here. So they perceive an injustice when there was no injustice committed, but they perceive it. So they're overly dependent on other people for the narcissistic supply, whichever form it may come in. It could come in in the form of sex. It can come in form of drugs, money, material things, ego, boosting the ego. See, the uh, narcissistic supply varies. One narcissistic supply often links to another. When they go to work, say you have some co-dependents, pardon me, some co-workers who are uh, cluster personality types. It could be your, uh, not only that, but it could be your supervisor. You may be in business. You may have a business partner, you know, who has a cluster personality type. But here's the thing. They are overly dependent on the narcissistic supply. One form, that's what I meant to say, one form of narcissistic supply often links to another. When they go to work, say you have co-workers, they get a paycheck just like you do. But they may be getting some other perks that you don't know about because they may be chummy with the supervisor. That's another video, by the way, or another live stream. Okay, they may be, they may be getting extra stuff on that job you don't know about. <laughs> okay, so not only are they getting paid, but what do they do with the payment? But before I get to that, another link to the uh, the source that they're getting, the narcissistic source supply, can also be the workforce, the work site. There are other bodies there that they can get the supply from, not just you, but other people. So another form of narcissistic supply can be, like I stated, the pay. What do they do with they, that pay? They may get some drugs. They may get some alcohol. They may, pop, they may buy somebody for sex. You, I mean, you just don't know. But one form of narcissistic supply often links to another. Okay, so this is why this, this whole crazy-making thing, you know, it, it, it boggles the mind. But it's supposed to scramble the mind. It's supposed to scramble the brain. You're not supposed to be able to really make sense of it. It's okay to be mindful that this happens. See, that's different. To be mindful that these things occur, that, that's, that's great. That's what's going to help you. 
but to really try to dissect and understand every move they make, why they do it, how they do it, I wouldn't suggest doing that. When we try to figure out, when we go up here and try to figure out the crazy making, that is where the dangerous thing can happen, such as mental uh, instability. Even emotional instability can happen. Okay, so um, so those are the three insecure attachment styles there, all right? Now, the functionality of cluster uh, personalities vary, and they do vary. I talked about the cluster A personality, the cluster B, the cluster C personality, okay? So for the cluster A personality, these are the individuals who are deemed as eccentric, okay? I think most of you have heard of that, that, that you know, some people who are eccentric, a little different, right? A little weird, but they may be good people. The cluster B personality, as I mentioned, they are the people who are emotionally erratic or they don't emotionally regulate very well. The cluster C personality, those individuals are the uh, people who have the uh, anxious, you know, personality type. Okay, they seem to, sometimes they, they tend to be very uh, nervous or fearful. Okay, They're, they are the ones that usually suffer from anxiety the most. Okay, so the other thing that I did find out, I want to share this with you all, um, that when it comes to the cluster B personality type, they tend to gravitate more towards the cluster, uh, I was going to say cluster B, uh, yeah, but some cluster B personality types do get along with other cluster B personality types, but the cluster C personality type is the personality that they tend to gravitate towards more so than the cluster A. Okay, now to me that's that's interesting, but I want to share that with you all. Now I don't know if you all found that out from your research, but I found that out that uh, a lot of cluster B personality types they tend to be in relationships um, with those who have a cluster C personality. And again, the cluster C are the ones who um, are more uh, anxious. And fearful, but maybe maybe that's why the cluster B personality type geared towards them more so because the cluster B personality types tend to be more of a like an emotional bully. Okay, and I think a lot of us can think about or recall, you know, if this doesn't pertain to you, maybe someone else you know, when you were children, the child that got picked on the most or the one that got bullied the most were the children who showed more fear. And what happens when you don't show any fear anymore to the bully? They go away. You ever notice that? Whenever you stand up to a bully, they don't bother you anymore. But let's just think about that for a minute. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the cluster B personality type tends to marry, tends to um, become romantically involved with, tends to uh, you know be in relationships with, any type of ship you can think of. Uh, and, and maybe that's why they gravitate towards the cluster C personality, because it is the, the cluster C personality that has more of a issue with social anxiety, you know, or anxiety and social anxiety to me, uh, one of the prerequisites of social anxiety is to be part of a family that may be a narcissistic family. It may be a dysfunctional family, right? But that family, see, it's a group within a social setting. 
A family is a group. So within that social setting, if that child or those children are alienated, they don't feel accepted, social anxiety can start to develop because they're becoming accustomed to not feeling good within a group. So when they go out into the world amongst other groups, whether it's school, the workforce, you know, just socializing with other people, they're very uncomfortable. The body remembers even when we do everything to try to forget. So when they when so when their body is within other groups, they're triggered by what they went through as children. When they were children, they were they felt alienated or they were alienated from the rest of the group, which is the family, especially if they were deemed or tagged as the scapegoated child rather than the golden child. I'll get to that in a minute. But I wanted to mention that sometimes social anxiety stems from that. So a person, when they were growing up, maybe they were, maybe their personality structure was not that of a cluster C. Maybe it was a cluster A, possibly a cluster B. But what I'm getting at is because parents are very influential. They have a lot of say on how a child turns out, right? So that's not, the, the personality is not excluded from that. So a child's, you know, their personality, the personality that they end up developing, such as a cluster B personality. Let's just say they started out with a cluster C, but maybe they ended up with a cluster B personality. Okay, because of the influence that the parents may have had, even the grandparents may have had on that child. And let's just say, I mean, really, parents have a lot of influence over children anyway, right? Because usually when we're children, we see our parents and even grandparents as gods. Let's just be for real. So, uh, you know, the functionality of cluster uh, personality types, they do vary. They vary from perspective and they vary in the emotional IQ or the intelligent, um, I think it's intelligence quotient. Okay, that IQ stands for intelligence quotient, I believe. But um, this is where the function, you know, they function from the, the each one of those cluster personality types, they vary in function, they vary in perspective, and they vary in emotional IQ. So that means some of those cluster personality types that I mentioned, they will get along with each other sometimes. Sometimes they'll even, and I'm just talking about the cluster B personality type right now. I don't mean to confuse anyone, but when it, where it pertains to the cluster B personality type because of the way they function, the way they perceive, the way they, their emotions uh, work, their emotional IQ tends to be low. So when they start dealing with each other, they can sometimes get along. Okay, because they're vibing off the same vibrational frequency, pretty much is, is level. Okay, because when we're in a in a room with someone, and let's just say their vibe is different from ours, this is why sometimes before we say anything to someone, we can we can we can sense them, or they can sense our energy. We can sense theirs, and sometimes we we don't really feel like we want to really get to know the other person. We kind of back away from them and sometimes we can't put our finger on why 
because we're on a different vibration. We're on a different frequency. Our energy is different. Energy, you know, that, that they function differently. They tend to fight for dominance within a space. So if, if you're dealing with a cosmic personality type, that's probably why you feel uncomfortable sometimes because their energy and your energy is fighting for dominance within a space. But when it comes to children who suffer from social anxiety, yeah, by the time they get to school, by the time they get to college, by the t- or high school or college, they, they see they're already revved up for that experience. They already feel uncomfortable within groups because of the experience that they had from the first group and that's their family. So if they've been tagged as a scapegoat or even a golden child, they expect or they unconsciously look for the same experiences over and over again. No matter where they go in life, no matter who they're dealing with, which leads me right to the dysfunctional roles. Scapegoated children are groomed to play dysfunctional roles, not only as scapegoat, but as the person that's projected onto. They're like an emotional dumping ground for cluster B personality parents and grandparents or even cluster B personality types within their family, period. They're usually the, the one who is tagged not only as the scapegoated child, but the one that others can uh, project their stuff onto. It's very sad, but it happens. So they're like an emotional dump, dumping ground. That's another dysfunctional role. Another dysfunctional role can be a psychological trap shoot. This is the person in the family that everybody goes to for the, with their problems. But yet that same family member cannot go to anyone else to have a shoulder to cry on is a very unbalanced relationship, which is, again, a codependent relationship. And then you're dealing with a narcissistic relationship because you have narcissistic family members and you're having a relationship with him or her. Okay, so uh, I wanted to mention those cluster personality types because some of them, they are flexible to change. Whereas the cluster B personality type they're not flexible. They're fixed. So more than likely, they're not going to change. It's less likely that they're going to change. Okay. So this is this is also what makes it very, you know, important to learn how to detach from narcissistic codependent relationships. Otherwise, you're going to uh, probably be experiencing enmeshment, trauma bonds, like the toxic tie I was talking about, the soul ties. Okay, all of this is very, uh, you know, this is this is big stuff. So some people think that this stuff is all, oh, you know, is all in your head. No, it's not. It's not. But because some codependents are, some people who have codependent relationships with those who have a cluster personality type, because they're dealing with those two components, it makes it more challenging, and therefore. If they're dealing with a covert narcissist, it makes it even more secretive. It makes it less apparent to other people to see what's really going on. Sometimes it even escapes the person who's the codependent. It escapes them. They don't really, you know, it's like a parallel reality. They're experiencing one thing in a relationship. And the, and the narcissist or cluster personality type, they're experiencing something else. Parallel reality. It's surreal. 
It's a twilight zone effect. Crazy making and full effect. Okay, so this is why it's so important to detach. All right, so uh, the cluster, let's... Um, Let's go on to, and I hope I explained the functionality of these three clusters uh, well enough for you all. And of course, at the end of the live stream, I'm going to have uh, time for questions, okay? All right. So the contrast as the seed of detachment. So we went over why it's important to learn how to detach from this type of uh, personality, such as the cluster B and why it is important or finding the value of learning how to detach from cluster B personality types and the codependent and narcissistic relationships, okay? So what does the contrast provide? I went over this earlier. It provides harmony, it provides peace of mind, and it provides a person some balance, which is something that I think unconsciously a lot of us are looking for anyway. You know, in other words, we don't really have to be conscious to it, but I just think as human beings, we tend to really look for those three things anyway. <laughs> you know, especially at home, we tend to look for some balance. We tend to look for some harmony. We, we tend to look for some peace, right? So the contrast provides these things. All right. So when it comes down to uh, signs of trauma, now, one of the things that I think is very important to realize is the effects of trauma. Because, see, the reason why I'm talking about trauma, because when it comes to these types of relationships, this is one of the aftermaths that's very common, especially when you're talking about a child, okay, who has been exposed to the first group, which is their family. But that family has a cluster B personality type or several of them. And that child, it's like that child is born into it. That child is exposed. So they grow up either uh, being taught to be a codependent, a golden child, or a scapegoat. Okay, so I touched on the dysfunctional roles before. Now, when it comes to the golden child, let me say something. I, I really didn't get into that. My apologies, y'all. But when it comes to the golden child, the golden child is also groomed, just like the scapegoated child is groomed. Now, the reason why I mentioned those two is because as they grow up within such, the first group in their family, right, when they're growing up, they tend to learn how to not only perceive one another, but how to deal with one another. I'm talking about this. Now I'm just talking about the children right now. The golden child and the scapegoated child. They learn how to deal with one another. They, they learn how to interact with one another. They learn how to perceive one another. Very deep. It is very deep. So when they're learning how to, to, to deal and learning how to, to uh, perceive one another, they're also learning what to think of one another. A lot of us, you know, this escapes us. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this is how 
we learn how to stay attached, which is an insecure attachment. Sometimes it's an inappropriate attachment. But I'm really going to look at the insecure attachment here. So that those, that relationship right there, and we can just say these are siblings, that attachment is insecure. Why? Because you have the golden child and you have the scapegoated child who, who perceive each other, they see each other a particular way that is often not reflective of reality. Just think about that for a minute. It, there is not reflective of reality. Number one, one, because they're being groomed to perceive each other in a way that will that would suit the narcissist or the cluster personality type, who's like the Oz behind the curtain, orchestrating the whole thing. That's why it's not reflective of reality. Because the narcissistic parent or grandparents, they groom consciously or unconsciously those uh, children, the scapegoated child and the golden child, for their narcissistic supply. I hope that makes sense. So this is the twilight zone that I was talking about. This is the parallel reality that I was talking about. Nothing is making sense, yet it's very familiar to everyone involved. And they're being taught that this is normal, but it's not normal. Or it's not natural, I should I would say. But we have to think about how these uh, inappropriate, I keep saying inappropriate, but insecure attachment styles start to develop even between siblings within a family. This is why sometimes when you're dealing with a sibling, if you are the one who was uh, tagged as scapegoat as a child, first of all, my heart goes out to you. Okay, so, you know, you are you have been groomed and say you're dealing with a sibling who's a golden child you have to understand i know that sometimes it's hard for us but you must understand that they also have been groomed because we have to remember that just like you they were children too somebody was was on their brain somebody was 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 shaping and molding not only their minds but their hearts, everything just shaped and molding them. They were being groomed. Okay, so the way you and your sibling or siblings relate to each other, please understand that all of that was orchestrated. It was orchestrated from the top, from the first, from the get, right out the gate. It was orchestrated. Okay, so that's an insecure attachment. Because you both both of you, okay, let's just say as is you and your and one other sibling, just for example, y'all not even relating to each other in a way that's re reflective. That it, I mean that's even positive. You're at odds with one another, you don't even really you really don't even understand why. You don't even understand what's the root cause of your not really getting along with each other. And I'm with I'm you know, I'm almost I'm willing to guess that it has nothing to do with either one of you. It was orchestrated that you two don't get along because just think about it. If you two were to get along and you start comparing notes about how you're experiencing the family, whew, somebody will get found out. 
somebody will get found out. The odds behind the curtain will be exposed. So, uh, you know, when we talk about insecure attachment, we got to think about that too. And as we move from not only our families, but when we have our own families, sometimes we end up realizing that we're playing the same role, whether that's of a golden child or a scapegoat child. We're playing the same role. We end up marrying somebody who treats us and expects us to play that role. Just think about it. Even when you go to work, same thing. You're playing the same role. It's a dysfunctional role. Or it's, you know, it's a role that's that of a golden child or a scapegoated child. It's all codependency, though. It's stemming from codependency. And we all, you know, it's like we, we gravitate towards what's familiar. So if we're familiar with playing that particular role, we're going to seek that experience no matter where we go. And the people that we interact, it's the same thing. It's very familiar. So it's very hard or challenging to detach from such, but it's imperative to do such in order to thrive forward past narcissistic codependent relationships. Otherwise, it's like we're in the sunken place. We're stuck. We're stagnant. Scenarios repeating. You know, investing in one narcissistic relationship after the other. But signs of trauma, okay, can reflect the need for detachment from narcissistic codependent relationships, right? So even a person that's showing signs of trauma, that's, that's showing that there's a need to learn how to detach from these types of relationships. But I really hope everybody can understand the dynamic of the insecure attachment between golden child and scapegoat a child. It's pretty deep, you know, but it's often overlooked. I mean, we feel it, but we don't, we, you know, it's, it's on the surface, I think, because we talk about how we don't get along with them. And, and I'm not belittling that, but I'm just saying, because this is one of the common themes. We talk about how much we don't get along with them, but yet what's the root cause of us not getting along with them? And I say it's the insecure attachment style. Okay, that was orchestrated before we can before kindergarten, <laughs> before we were even in school. Okay, yeah. So anyway, um, signs of trauma, addiction, obsession, adverse childhood experiences, which I touched on that a little bit. Uh, complex PTSD, PTSD, self defeat or self sacrificing, poor health, anxiety mismanagement of anger, and I'm going to add uh, misplacement of anger. One of the uh, examples I want to bring about misplacement of anger, anger is misplacement of anger can show up when we're dealing with the golden child sibling. Yeah. Misplacement of anger. When, okay, what do I mean by that? You just blow up? I've done this. Sometimes anger just come out. It even shocks me when it comes out sometimes. Like, oh, where'd that come from? And when you're dealing with, say, the golden child, and this is just an example, golden child sibling, you know, they didn't really do anything in particular. But for some reason, you, you know, you're, you're angry with him or her, but you really don't know why. Again, 
the insecure attachment style seed was planted when you two were children. Y'all didn't orchestrate it. You all didn't concoct this this thing out of your minds and and and, and there you go, you just don't get along. But I know there's different reasons for siblings not getting along. There's sibling rivalry. But when you're talking about narcissistic codependent relationships, sibling rivalry is on another level. It's on another level. Okay, because this is not... First of all, you're dealing with a particular group, a family that has cluster personality types who may not be aware how they're affecting other people. Again, because the way they relate is problematic. We're creatures of habit. We stick to what we know, right? So there is problematic, just the way they relate, how they relate. And when you throw in there the emotional IQ being very low, yeah, they don't even care. <laughs> okay, they don't care about how they relate to other people. They don't want, they want that narcissistic supply. All right, so the effects of trauma can be passed on. Now we're talking about intergenerational and transgenerational trauma. Okay, I've done a few videos about that. Influences personality development. I touched on that earlier. Dysfunctional roles, golden child versus scapegoat. Okay, I just went over that. But let's go up to the intergenerational and transgenerational trauma. Transgenerational and intergenerational trauma. This is where as uh, the effects of trauma are passed on to offspring from grandparents and parents. Okay, so if your grandparents or your parents went through something that caused them trauma, the effects of that can be passed on to you when you, you know, as a child. So you may start to feel uh, the uh, anxiety that I was talking about. That's a sign of, of trauma sometimes, you know, uh, feeling anxious. So this is a little bit different from the social anxiety that I was talking about before. So just feeling anxiety or feeling uh, the panic attacks. And sometimes you don't even you don't even know where that where that came from or why you ended up that way. Well, did your parents or grandparents go through something that caused them trauma? For instance, your father may have been in the military. Maybe he fought in a war like Vietnam. Okay, so he was traumatized. Okay, so the effect of that can be passed on to his offspring. And of course, he's not aware of this. The father is not aware of this. Unless, you know, he learns later that that's what happened. Same with your mom. Maybe she went through something that caused her trauma. The effects of that can be passed on to you.
There are four steps that I'd like to share with you right now that more than likely you won't hear anywhere else. Okay, now four steps that must be taken in order to thrive forward past narcissistic codependent relationships. Step number one, identify that you are or you were in a pig pen called narcissistic codependent relationship. Okay, uh, you were in a pig sty or you were in a pig pen. Pretty much you were, <laughs> you were stuck in some nasty stuff for quite a bit of time. More than likely, it started during your childhood. Perhaps you had uh, parents who had narcissistic personality or grandparents who had some sort of cluster B personality type. Okay, so number one, identify take off the rose-colored glasses and identify that you were either once in the pigsty or the pig pen called narcissistic codependent relationships or you still are okay step number two plan and strategize and then execute getting out of that pig pen okay you can't stay there forever switch up where you are in the pig pen if you can't get out right now okay so either way you're gonna have to shift the gears a little bit step number three once you get out of the pig pen of narcissistic codependent relationship make sure you take time out to wash that stench off okay translation release the energy that no longer serves you. The aftermath of narcissistic codependent relationships can be very heavy, energetically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you name it. It's just a very, it seems like a very heavy burden. So you need to take time out to release the energy of that experience. It is not your fault. You are not at your experiences. Okay, um, the narcissist and the cluster personality type, perhaps they have groomed you to think, feel, and behave a particular way that will ensure that they get source supply. When you're washing that stench off, what you're doing is releasing the energy. But it is imperative that you use the right tools, tips, and guidelines which are designed to be effective Okay, very effective, meaning you're thriving forward. You're not just surviving, you're thriving. So these tips, tools, and guidelines, which I give very often on the Luminous Star channel, right, will help you to thrive forward because you are taking soap and water, right? Just picture yourself washing off the stench of the pig pen. You have soap, you have water, you have your scrubbing brush, whatever you need. You have the right stuff you have the right tools you have the right equipment to get the job done that is pretty much what i'm saying about step number three make sure that when you are getting rid of the energy and you're getting rid of the stench of the narcissistic codependent relationship you have the right tools you have the right stuff you have the right equipment to do so because it's not a one-size-fits-all see what works for me may not work for you step number four Okay, step number four is when you're going out into the world and you are open to having positive 
or healthy relationships. Now, this is something that's probably going to shock you. I don't think anyone has ever told you this. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty confident that no one has ever told you this. And it is this. Narcissistic codependent relationships often have a heavy energy that hides, if not bury your energy body underneath it. Let me rephrase that and repeat what I just said. Narciss the energy of narcissistic codependent relationships tends to hide, if not bury, the essence of a person. Your energy body has been buried by the energy of narcissistic codependent relationships. This is why in step number four, when you go out into the world to have relationships with other people, you tend to meet people who behave like your narcissist. When we go out into the world, we go out into the world sending off signals that perhaps we're not conscious of. We go out into the world with our energy body. We are all comprised of energy. So when we go out into the world, this is what the world sees. So when you go out into the world with the stench of narcissistic codependent relationships, unbeknownst to you, that is what the world sees. The world doesn't see you in your true essence. The world doesn't get an experience of your true essence and or energy. Hope that makes sense. It is like you have been buried alive. So when you go out into the world with the stench of narcissistic codependent relationship experiences, well, that's what the world sees. That's what the world senses. That's what the world will tend to move away from. Because let's face it, nobody wants to be in narcissistic codependent relationships being used as pawns. It's a very heavy energy. So those four steps are imperative. A lot of people skip to step number four. When they do that, they end up repeating painful scenarios. They end up attracting more narcissists into their life at work and at home. And they wonder why they keep having that nightmare. It's like they're in a twilight zone. It's like they can't wake up. So those four steps are very important. Number four is the most kick-ass step. <laughs> and that is because by step number four, when you go out into the world, you've washed off the stench of narcissistic codependent relationships. It is not your fault that that stench got on you. You were subjected to the pig pen in the first place. Therefore, you were imprisoned in it for quite some time. So therefore, it rubbed off on you. So when you get out, first, when you identify, secondly, when you strategize, thirdly, when you get out and wash the stench off, so number four, you go out into the world, well, you're ready and you're open to having brand new experiences, such as positive relationships. Remember, we are all comprised of energy. What really matters is energy, frequency, and vibration. That's what really matters. So when we go out into the world after having those experiences with narcissists, well, 
Most people are going to pick up on that energy and they're not going to see us for who we really are. This is why a lot of you have put a lot of energy and effort into having positive relationships to no avail because of what I just went over. It is because those four steps weren't taken. Perhaps number four, the fourth step, was taken first, if at all. Some people don't even get to step number four. I certainly hope this video and this episode has been enlightening, and I certainly hope it has been food for thought. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.